Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. In the next three episodes, I'm going to focus on Germany with the help of Jerome Heinz, who is a um, tour guide based in Germany, um, who is on a hiatus at the moment, so he's able to take some time out um, to explain all the latest trends in Germany, which we will be looking at through the course of these next three episodes. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the dry wines of Germany in contrast to the sweet wines, which Germany is perhaps best known for, but the dry wines are the ones which are really attracting um, attention in terms of quality and prestige these days. And I was supposed to be in Germany in March, and obviously that trip got cancelled, and part of the reason for my trip to Germany was to go to the Provine, but also to visit some wineries and really learn about what's going on in Germany right now. So instead of that, uh, we have Jerome with us, uh, live from Germany, and he's going to chat with us. So first of all, Jerome, can you introduce yourself? I'm a tour guide, actually. I organize uh, international groups into Germany. I show people around. And uh, maybe as, uh, my full name actually is uh, Jérôme, Jérôme Heinz, originating half from France. My mother's from Champagne. That uh, explains my French first name, <laughs> last name Heinz, pretty much German. And um, yeah, I'm running wine tours since three years here. My original background is actually uh, completely different. I changed business uh, three years ago. Uh, my original business is uh, conferences and events. Three years ago, I decided to kind of follow my my interest and, and my passion. I used to, to maybe explain a little bit that, that background, uh, I used to uh, work a lot internationally. I uh, came to China in 2000. And um, in China, uh, everybody congratulated me to Mercedes beer and pork knuckles. And um, people seem to have very much um, fixed ideas about what uh, Germany was in terms of a, a culinary uh, country. Practically not really an interesting destination. And that kind of angered me. Uh, and I started actually kind of hand importing um, Rieslings back to Beijing, later on to Shanghai, and also to Hong Kong not as a business, but as a means to show people that we have certainly more to offer uh, than beers and, and good football. Um, and that led actually me to appreciate yeah, the wines of my home country much more than I actually used to when I, I lived in Germany. And yeah, that triggered a bit my, my passion for, uh, for Germany also as, as a real destination for international visitors. So here I am. I, I am an expert for the regions of Rheingau, Rheinhessen, Mittelrhein, a little bit of Moselle. Um, I know pretty much about uh, German wine history and I'll be very happy to you know, talk to you about whatever questions you have in terms of uh, modernization of, of German vineyards. I think the, the first time we got in touch was basically when I, I mentioned, um, when I heard one of your podcasts. and. I thought, yeah, this is this is Germany. It's true. Um, uh, Germany is a country uh, where we officially, for a very long time, rated wine quality by the sweetness in the grapes. And I guess you know, in the last twenty years, that's that's changed a lot. So we are looking actually at a country that is very, very proud actually of excellent dry wines. 
Yes, so, I mean, one of the things you're talking about there is kind of the perception of German wine internationally is probably different from the reality in Germany. And that seems to have have inspired you to actually get involved in German wine and to promote it. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, I I work mostly uh, with Anglo-Saxon visitors, um, the majority coming from the United States. And um, I have a fair share of... Um, very well-educated people who really know uh, about German wines and who are really almost more expert than I am. Um, and then there is actually also a good amount of people who are just surprised that Riesling is not necessarily sweet and that we have red wines here, um, pretty good ones. Trip is a huge range of different varietals. So yes, um, I, I think I I am coming from a perspective that is yeah looking from outside into into Germany, and I, I hope that we can change those views actually on the long run um, because again people seem to have pretty much fixed ideas on what Germany is able to serve in, in the world of wines, and I think this uh, it's not necessarily wrong, but there is so much more to it. Right, and, and I've sold German wine here in California. People who are really into wine know exactly what they're, they're getting. They know the dry Riesling, they know the red wine, they know the quality, and they know how these wines can age as well. And then you have, then you have the general conception that the wine is going to be sweet, and that's it. And also not very good as well, which is and it's kind of two difficult things to um, sell wine to the general consumer. Yeah, I think that's the biggest... How to say, I think that's the biggest um, confusion, right? That, I mean, sweetness is a style in wine, right? It's, uh, we're talking about a wine style, and that's not necessarily bad. There's fantastic sweet wines. There's just so many people associating sweetness with badness. And it's probably also because so much bad sweet wine has been sold into uh, the U.S. coming from Germany. Take these Blue Nun, Black Tower, and whatnot brands, um, they certainly contributed to a vision of Germany as a as, 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 as an exporter of, of cheap and sweet. So what has changed in the last 20 years? Um, let's talk about the VDP and their influence on German wine. So what is the VDP and how has that influence producers? The, the VDP is an association of uh, elite winemakers. It's a, in fact, it's it's a club. It's not an open association um, that everybody can join into. It is actually a, really a closed association where pe- people need to apply to join in. It's about 200, uh, 200 and something uh, winemakers. Uh, it's it's a very old institution, and they've always kind of looked into keeping into managing quality of the members. They've done so to, I, I guess, very different levels, but in terms of success. Um, but if you look at the, the last 20, 25 years, they've done an excellent job in changing the perspective from quality ratings by sweetness in grapes at harvest time to actually the origin of grapes. So basically, where is your grape coming from? And then actually, how do you make it the best possible wine? The traditional view of Germany is indeed a focus really on how sweet your grapes are at 
uh, this time. So VDP in, um, I think it was 2000, in, in, installed the quality, what we call the quality pyramid. Uh, they looked at Burgundy very much into how to uh, classify your wines. And, and they came up with a classification based on where the grapes are coming from. Uh, there is a level that is called a Gutswein. Then there is uh, a level called Ortswein, then Große Lage and Erste Lage. And these, these, um, these Lagerweine, they actually are based on where the winemakers get his grapes from. Um, with each origin, so again, estate wine, how do you call it, village wine, and then Premicru, Grand it's, it's a similar approach, basically. And you are actually also required if you name or if you label your wines according to these quality levels to work actually also with um, a certain amount of um, yield reduction for instance yield control and also uh, a certain amount of time um, of maturation of the wines they were so successful with that that they um, that non-vdp members actually uh, um, are copying this kind of approach. So you have, for instance, in Rheinhessen, uh, an association of winemakers, um, where the name is Maxime Herkunft, and they just basically follow this. Uh, so they're not necessarily VDP members, and still they say, this is the way we need to go. Um, so a lot of, of winemakers are following exactly that approach. So that was installed, yeah, about 20 years ago. And I think this is what um, is really yeah, coming forward um, also probably in into German wine laws as um, a German, German wine law will evolve. So how do the VDP feel about other regions, other producers following their system? I think they, generally spoken, uh, I think they are happy about that. The uh, important thing though is the VDP is... I mean, they are setting standards and they certainly want to make sure that the wines um, that their members produce are positioned differently from others. So um, in terms of naming and protection, they certainly um, request their members to add VDP Große Lage, for instance, or the VDP Großes Gewächs. So to combine actually terms VDP and the quality levels, um, and these are protected. You cannot protect um, the name Große Lager or Großes Gewächs. That's something that, um, in terms of branding, is not possible. I, I don't have any direct statement of the VDP about you know, what they think of others following their lead, but in fact, they should be proud because it's, it's, it's a great push forward for Germany altogether in winemaking. And do these kind of um, VDP new regulations or new laws really promote dry wine over sweet wine? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, because all um, Gutswein, Lagenwein, courses give they need to be dry wines. They cannot be sweet wines. Yeah. You cannot make them sweet. If you're on a VDP level, um, you actually cannot sell them as 
uh, sweet wines. Um, we need to be careful here because, in fact, it's not. It's. It doesn't mean that the sweeter wines are bad. I think that's that's a very important thing to to keep in mind. Huh? Uh, this kind of focus on quality, of course, kind of spills over into um, into other types of other wine styles. So um, single vineyard wines that are sweet can be fantastic. Of course, they are fantastic, um, but they are not um, labeled VDP courses, Gewächs, for instance. Talking about the German wine laws, which were designed in the early 1970s, do you think they are out of date or need changing or will they change? Will they adapt to these different styles, these different trends? Yeah. Yeah, they 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 will adapt and they will be changed. The the wine laws in the seventies were they were quite they were made more or less by bureaucrats and they were made to support actually the sale of 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 German wines abroad and and also in Germany. And don't forget, you know, in the the fifties sixties, the wine styles people liked sweet wines. There was a focus on that, and they were successful. I mean, the um, Pramish, as it was, you know, in the seventies, was a wine that people loved, and it was sold by millions of cases, actually, also into the U.S. Um, so, what the wine ma- wine law tried to do was actually to kind of support this and to control this a bit more. The, the thing is, with these definition by sweetness, the whole the, the entire focus on sweetness levels instead of origins of the grapes. What happened was basically that then all of a sudden winemakers would start to label their wines only by um, sweetness levels and not um, include or start to include famous vineyards into their names. I'll give you an example, you know, Liebfraumich, that used to be a a small vineyard plot. It is still today, actually, in Worms, 12 hectares. Very small, very high quality. Um, the Liebfraumisch style that was allowed to be made, it, it, is, it was just a style. So basically, they took over the vineyard name into a wine style. And all of a sudden, you would get a wine named Liebfraumisch that was sweet and not necessarily including grapes from that vineyard. And the wine laws of the 70s actually allowed even more of that. So basically, you would have a lot of um, wines labeled by one single famous vineyard that was close by, but not necessarily the grapes coming from that vineyard. And so now there's obviously a much greater emphasis on where the wine comes from on the vineyards. And so producers are really looking at the vineyard and saying this is what the style is and being much more specific about it. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, look, I mean, um, the thing is that nowadays even a lot of vineyards are huge. Yeah? Um, take the Steinberg, the famous Steinberg vineyard of, of uh, Rheingau, that's uh, 30 hectares or so. It's huge and it has a totally, it has a huge different aspects and terrains and um, and and uh, microclimatic situations. So winemakers and the winemakers that are looking into this vineyard, they will actually really kind of try to dissect the vineyard 
and then get the best crops into, for instance, their, their grosses gewächs out of this Steinberg. Another example in Moselle, the Trittheimer Apotheker, that's 140 something hectares, so ginormous in terms of um, hectares, in terms of size. And then you have actually then the a lot of winemakers working those vineyards and they will dissect it and make, actually try to make the best wines out of these different sections. I guess, you know, with the, in parallel to that push by the VDP 2000, you had already like a younger generation of winemakers that was already looking at how to improve this situation for their wines because German wine exports did not go that well. So you had, for instance, in Anheisen, people like Keller, Wittmann, Gunderloch. Um, these guys were already like filleting or really going into the vineyards and making proper choices of the grapes for the top bottles. So another example would be Clemens Busch, because they named some of their wines after the colour of the slate. And mm, that's, I think absolutely. That's, I think that's quite a good way of marketing the wine. And how how are other producers marketing? Or, or Heinlein Löwenstein also, they do it. Um, the Uhlen is is named after the colors of the uh, of the slate um, in, in Moselle. Exactly, exactly. Um, and they, um, these, of course, these color, color parts define different uh, areas of a, of a vineyard. And so how do um, these producers market these wines? Because it's a different style from what um, international consumers expect from Germany. So how do producers change consumers' perceptions of the wines? I think mostly it is by working. So these winemakers, they work together. You have the VDP 200 winemakers. You have um, different associations and um, groups of winemakers who work together. They will organize um, tastings together. They will um, have joint presentations at fairs together and typically they have actually also like joint brochures, joint um, websites, joint presentations and that they certainly that helps uh, with the with the consumers um, in, in Germany. Overseas I think you would have to. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not too sure, honestly, how this works overseas with the person with the views. Um, uh, I think again, we, we mentioned that um, at the beginning of our discussion. I think there's still a lot of confusion about um, what German wine is. Yes, um, I mean it's all about education and tastings and having actually people exposed to these wines. But you know, some of these wines are actually quite expensive. The you know with the higher quality and the work in the vineyard you can they can be expensive but then you can compare them to burgundy and say it's the same kind of uh, approach expensive in the process of making the wines yes but also selling as an as, as basically the bottle to consumer price. yeah so like a, a good quality riesling dry riesling here in california could be 20 dollars but then getting into the sing, single vineyard Riesling could be $50 or $70 or $80. Right. So, you know, those wines are expensive, but they're appealing to the connoisseur, the expert, the people who, yeah. and again, who drink white burgundy or something similar to that. Yeah, and I, I think you have to bear in mind um, for wines from steep slopes in in Germany, this is a fair price. You got to 
keep in mind that uh, a wine from you know slopes in Moselle or Arles or in some parts of, of Nahe, um, these steep slopes, the efforts you have to make to get a bottle of wine out of there is about four times as high as maybe from just rolling hills of mm-hmm. Rheinhessen or from uh, Pfalz. So basically your mechanization uh, is, is far, far lower and you have to work really by hand. So generally spoken, um, the, the price um, of a bottle of 30 or 40 dollars on a high-end quality, high quality wine is, is justified mm-hmm. totally. Yeah, and again that's where the education comes in, actually explaining why a wine costs what it does. I also think some of the bigger producers do a really good job of having an introductory wine that's 20 to 25 dollars which people can try and then having their higher end wines and then you know you're just selling them up it's going this producer's really good this wine's really good yeah. and i i mean you asked me about wine marketing how people present them um, i mean people like selbach oster for instance from mozilla i think he spends they spend like 50% of their time on the road, huh? mm-hmm. doing these things. I, I think they visit the US like three or four times a year, actually. Yeah, storytelling is probably one of the biggest efforts and the biggest, I mean, probably also the, the method that is the most successful in selling wine. And there's so many good quality wines out there <laughs> that, that most likely it is about the story that you tell. That will make a difference. Yeah, get people to try the wine. And we've talked about single vineyards and the trend towards that. What about the different regions? Do you feel that the differences between the Mosul and the Rangau and Faltz are being emphasised more than they used to? To say this isn't just German wine, these are the different regions of Germany that produce different um, characteristics. Look, from what I can see in, in the States, for instance, the interest in German wine, um, also by, by pros, by collectors. It's all focused on Rheingau, Moselle, a little bit of Nahe, um, but that's that's almost it. You have some exceptions, maybe the Keller wines in Rheinhessen, maybe a little bit of Baden, but I think most people really, they when they think German wine, they think Moselle, Rheingau, Nahe, possibly. Truth is, of course, there's so much more to it. Um, if you now take the in Germany perspective, so by consumers in Germany, the best known, the most famous um, areas are the same. In fact, <laughs> it's Mosel, it is, uh, it is Rheingau. Um, amongst um, my lovers, though, there is an increasing focus. There was, or actually, it's almost like taking out a bit of focus on the area of Rheinhessen, mm-hmm. very much Rheinhessen, which is the area basically south of Rheingau. So if you figure Germany, you have Frankfurt in the middle, a couple of kilometers to the west, the west um, it's, it's Rheingau, and south of the river, you will have Rheinhessen. Um, so there is, there, 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 there was quite an increase focus on Rheinhessen. What I can see now is that there's movement towards Württemberg, interestingly. Mm. The red wines of Württemberg, for instance. Um, uh, the um, um, Baden, not so much, but I hear more often Württemberg as an origin of very interesting wines. Um, and also in terms of 
wine fashion, um, maybe also different varietals that are moving forward. So while Moselle and Rheingau are very much known for their Rieslings, if you go further south uh, and the temperature increases, mind you, Germany is going over four degrees of latitude, yeah, from the from the fifty first all the way down to 48, 49. Mm-hmm. So you have actually quite a range of temperatures here and then the possibility in Baden, uh, in Baden, for instance, or in Württemberg to um, cultivate grapes that um, enjoy more sunshine. Or Pfalz, actually Pfalz is also already a very warm area. So yeah, in the next episode, we're going to talk about other grape varieties apart from Riesling. So we'll talk about Baden a little bit more in that episode, perhaps. Um, just one last question in this episode on the ch- changes in um, Germany. What about the international influence on Germany? Thinking, for example, of Australia and the reasons that come out of Australia, has that had an influence on German uh, winemaking and styles? I wouldn't say so. I wouldn't say so. Um, I, honestly, I've never thought about this. Um, it never came up to me as as a topic. Uh, you will find it very difficult to actually buy Australian Rieslings or Rieslings uh, from the Finger Lakes or from any other so-called New World mm-hmm. uh, wine area. I guess um, we are a little bit like the French and the Italians in that way. We think we are the best with Rieslings, same as the French are, think they are the best with the Cabernet Sauvignons. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're certainly not buy from anybody else. Um, the only ones that are quite successful in Germany with um, their Rieslings are the Austrians. Austrians uh, the Austrian Rieslings are quite um, well received here, but I think that's more for because we're culturally very much interlaced and but and i couldn't see any influence of whistlings from australia but may i ask actually i'm now curious how how, is there any specific background to that question did you see that or do you um when i was i visited australia and i talked to some producers and they felt that they had influenced the germans and I think that change towards more dry Rieslings, they felt was driven in part by Australian, uh, success of Australian Rieslings. And like Grosset in um, Clare Valley, I think it was in 1999, he won the first international Riesling challenge in Germany. Those wines were extremely well received and that German yeah. winemakers were very receptive to what was happening in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see that to some extent, especially the kind of very active winemakers like Dr. Lewis, and I mean, mm-hmm. they are all over the place and certainly yeah. will visit a lot of different countries. And I guess they will be also very impressed by Eden Valley Riesling. I mean, um, but I would not say that this was actually of a very big influence. Right. So you feel that all these changes have, very, have been very internally driven well, um, okay, let's let's rewind a little bit here. Um, see, uh, so we, we talked about the, the changes that occurred mid of the 90s, turn of the last the, the century. So uh, VDP installing actually its new um, its new system. But at the same time, there was actually generation change in Germany. A, young, a lot of young winemakers would take over 
from their parents. These guys, these young winemakers, they, they learned differently. Um, their parents had actually been raised by their parents and kind of taught how to make wine. Um, but the, the newer generation, um, well, they had the money to go to uni, right? And they went to Geisenheim. From Geisenheim, which is yeah, corresponding to UC Davis in, in California. So they were, they were in Geisenheim, they met international students. They were sent abroad for internships. They learned um, in a very casual way that it is actually very cool to sit next to other winemakers and to exchange and taste bottles together and to, and to kind of talk about the wines and not see your neighbor uh, as an enemy or a competitor, but actually maybe so somebody could enrich the style of wines, the way you can work. So these guys, when they came back, actually, they would certainly bring back also um, new ideas. So maybe to get back to your question about the influence of Australia in winemaking, um, I think in a, in a bigger picture, probably yes. Probably there was influence. Uh, I'm not sure if I would reduce that to, for instance, Riesling making. Uh, I think I would kind of broaden this to the way wines were made and how people communicated and how they sit together and how they think about, you know, joint promotions. Um, how they think maybe also about wine programs and wine lists. Um, in very classical estates, you still have wine lists with like what, 50, 100 different wines, right? Um, while in many uh, New World uh, estates, we're talking about 10, 20 different wines. So reducing your positions, working proper uh, marketing and branding, um, relabeling, and so on. I, I think there's many, um, there is certainly uh, a lot of influence that came back into Germany here. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I think just thinking broadly, not just about Germany, a lot of younger winemakers or kind of um, even experienced winemakers, they had that um, experience at the beginning of their career where they worked in South Africa or France or New Zealand. And it's just giving them that different exposure that you can take back home and just learn or just bring on those experiences in a very personal way rather than let's change everything because of this experience. So just part of those developments. Let's wrap up this episode on these different, the changing styles of German wine over the last 20 years. I think we've covered quite a bit of ground. And in the next episode, we're going to kind of continue this by looking at different trends and revivals and not just Riesling, the other styles of wine which are made in Germany. So uh, thank you, Jerome, and I'll see you in the next episode. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.